From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Welcome. It's a Tuesday edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Father Wade is in the house, but he's not really in the house, as we're doing a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. A very special edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We're going to empty out the mailbag with Father Wade today, talking faith, family, and fellowship. So no phone calls today, but if you'd like to be part of a mailbag show in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email Open line at EWTN.com. That's open line, all one word, at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams. Michael McCall is producing the program and our host, as he is every Tuesday. Father Wade Menezes, how are you? I'm doing great, Jack, and I'm getting ready for this Sunday. Probably one of my top five solemnities, personally so. Uh, in the entire liturgical year, Trinity Sunday. I just love Trinity Sunday. It follows Pentecost Sunday. And uh, my first Mass of Thanksgiving back in my hometown after I was ordained during the Jubilee year 2000 was held on Trinity Sunday, and that's, that's a big part of why it's so special to me. But I'm just really looking forward to this solemnity and want to share with others this great news of the three divine persons and our Trinitarian God. So I bet during the liturgy on Trinity Sunday, you'll be praying to the Father through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. That's right. Two through and in, that collect prayer, as well as every collect prayer at every Mass we attend, is always directed to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit. The collect prayer being that prayer that we hear right after the penitential rite at Mass, also known as the opening prayer, where the priest says, let us pray, and then he pauses, and he makes a mental intention at that moment to collect, that's why it's called the collect prayer, to collect all the intentions that have been brought to that particular Mass to unite with his primary intention as the priest celebrant. Then he offers all those intentions after that pause in the orans position, Latin for praying in the gerundive, and he both hands are outside to, to his sides, and, and it, it shows that he's just really collected huh? Uh, th- those intentions, and now he's offering them up to the Father through the Son and the Holy Spirit. You know, it's, it's been said, Jack, and I want to begin the springboard with, with this uh, quote, it's been said that if you truly, sincerely involve Almighty God, the Blessed Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your daily life, you can do more by accident than what you set out to do on purpose. <laughs> and that I'm, I'm a living proof of that. If you truly, sincerely involve the three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in your daily life, cognizantly so, uh, with, with full deliberate, deliberate reality of, of an intention in your will to want to involve all three divine persons, you can, you can accomplish more by accident than what you set out to do on purpose. And this is tied to something that St. Irenaeus says, early church bishop and doctor of the church. He says, this is the glory of man, to persevere and remain in the service of Almighty God. This is the glory of man, to persevere and remain in the service of Almighty God. And St. Gregory of Nazianzen says, nothing gives such pleasure to our Trinitarian God as the conversion and salvation of all for whom his every word and every revelation exists. He wants you to become a living force for all mankind, 
lights shining in the world. You are to be radiant lights as you stand before Christ, the great light, bathed in the glory of him who is the light of heaven. You are to enjoy more and more the pure and dazzling light of the most holy trinity, as now you have received, though not in its fullness, a ray of its splendor, proceeding from the one God in Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom be glory and power forever and ever in the Holy Spirit. Amen. So before I give a few quotes here on to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit. A little bit about the Trinity. The word Trinity is a term used since around 200 AD to denote the central doctrine of the Christian faith. God, who is one and unique in his infinite substance, or nature, is three really distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The one and only God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yet, God the Father is not God the Son, but generates the Son eternally as the Son is eternally begotten. The Holy Spirit is neither the Father nor the Son, but a distinct person having the divine nature from the Father and the Son by eternal procession. The three divine persons are co-equal, co-eternal, and consubstantial, and deserve co-equal glory and adoration. The doctrine of the Most Holy Trinity, then, is the mystery of one God and three divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The revealed truth of the Most Holy Trinity is at the very root of the Church's living faith as expressed in the Creed. The mystery of the Most Holy Trinity in itself is inaccessible to the human mind or to human reason and is the object of faith only because it was revealed by Jesus Christ, the divine Son of the Eternal Father. So a little uh, catechesis there on the Blessed Trinity. So again, to the Father, through the Son, in the Holy Spirit is how we see the Collect Prayer uh, always uh, worded. And, and St. Thomas Aquinas says it is the Lord's will that man have eternal life. So we want to be close to the three divine persons. We want to draw close to our God. huh? You know, like when we pray to the Trinity, I like to ask people, is prayer definitely your steering wheel or is it only your spare tire? Huh? The steering wheel is much more important when you're driving than the spare tire is. And, and we want to make prayer our steering wheel of our, of our life. I think that's extremely important. Um, St. Bonaventure says, we must ask the Father to give us through his Son and in the Holy Spirit a true knowledge of Jesus Christ, and along with that knowledge, a love of him. Through that knowledge, we can come at last to know perfectly and love completely the most holy trinity whom the saints desire to know and love in whom all that is good and true finds its meaning and fulfillment. St. Athanasius says this, The Father makes all things through his Son, the Word, and in the Holy Spirit. For grace and the gift of the Trinity are given by the Father through the Son in the Holy Spirit. Just as grace is given from the Father through the Son, so there would be no communication of the gift to us except in the Holy Spirit. But when we share in the Spirit... We then possess the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Spirit himself. And uh, St. Columban, the famous abbot whose writings I love so much, he says, Who then is God? I shall tell you. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God. Do not look for any further answers then concerning God, for this is the answer. He is the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And another church father whose name I I like to tell 
parents having a little boy to think about naming their boy after Jack, St. Terebius of Montenegro. Huh? Isn't that great? St. <laughs> <laughs> Terebius of Montenegro says, God is the infinitely perfect being who is the most holy trinity. Quote, end quote. God is the infinitely perfect being who is the Most Holy Trinity. So let's say you have a non-Catholic friend, maybe a Protestant friend, or maybe even a non-Christian friend, who says, hey, you know, I know you practice your Catholic faith pretty strongly. For you as a Catholic, who is your God? Who do you see God as, precisely as a Catholic? That would be a great apologetical answer to give that friend of yours. You would answer this, this way. You would say, for me, as a Catholic, as a Catholic Christian, I will tell you exactly who my God is. My God is the infinitely perfect being who is the Most Holy Trinity. A great answer from St. Terebius, huh? And uh, uh, St. Cyril of Jerusalem says, Now real and true life begins now that we know the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Father who is the fountain of life and who pours forth his heavenly gifts on all of his creatures through the Son in the Holy Spirit. And lastly, Pope St. Leo the Great, a great quote again, that giving us this formulary of the colic prayer at the beginning of every Mass. Pope St. Leo the Great says, Beloved, let us always give thanks to God the Father through his Son, Jesus Christ, in the Most Holy Spirit. There you have it, Jack. Two through and in. You know, the Latin phrase is to, ad, A-D, to, uh, through, per, P-E-R, and in, I-N. To the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we direct our prayer. Not only the collect prayer, but you'll notice also the doxology uh, uh, at, at the end of the Eucharistic prayer, the same thing. And the Eucharistic prayer itself is always directed to the Father, through the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the very act of the consecration at Mass of the Eucharist, no longer ordinary bread and wine, right, from the words of consecration onwards, but truly, really, and substantially, the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord Jesus Christ. So this formulary we take from the sacred liturgy into our own personal life, uh, again, whether single, married, or as a consecrated religious, and we want to offer everything, our prayer, our work, our recreation, Uh, to the Father, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit, thereby involving the three divine persons in your daily life. Very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. We won't be taking your phone calls today. We're emptying uh, emptying out the mailbag. Uh, But stick around. We've got some great questions coming up for you on this mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. You know, we're not taking your phone calls today, but we do have a bank full of callers that were left over from the show prior to the recording of this show, and we're going to get to those good folks as we go along here. If you are listening to EWTN Radio on an AM or FM station in your area, be thankful and support those good folks. If you don't have an AM or FM station carrying EWTN programming in your area, perhaps our Lord may be tugging at your heart to help him make that happen. If you think you might be interested in bringing EWTN programming 
programming to your area, just send Steve an email at radio at EWTN.com. Just email Steve, radio at EWTN.com. To the phones we go. First up is Diane in Carmel, California, listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Diane, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, Father Wade. Uh, my question is, does the Church have a description of who God's little ones are, as noted in Zechariah 13, 5-7? I've heard that they might be the poor or possibly all the baptized Christians. That's Zech- Zechariah 5, what chapter? Zechari- Zechariah 13, 5 through 7. I'm looking to see what our trusty uh, uh, church fathers have to say about this. Um, is that Zechariah or Ezekiel? Zechariah. 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 Yeah, Zechariah. Yeah. Uh, here we, we have a, a number of church fathers that said it was in reference to the poor and those seeking the truth. Um, remember, uh, everything in the Old Testament still has a valid pertinence to it, even after the coming of Jesus Christ. This is why the canon of Scripture is so important. Um, the, the, the canon of Scripture of, of, of the of the books of the Old Testament and the books of the New Testament. So the Old Testament can still have a bearing message on our salvation. Our Lord himself says in the Gospels, I did not come to abolish the old law, but to bring it to perfection. So uh, the poor, the disenfranchised, those seeking the truth, those, might, those who might have material wealth or, or riches or material goods, but are lacking uh, and are very poor in faith, could also be something by, anal- by analogy that's, that's a reality here in regards to the poor. We don't necessarily mean just the material poor, St. Augustine would teach. Um, this is why we look also to, the, to the, the, four, the four senses of Scripture in the two parent categories of literal and spiritual. So the literal is the literal uh, interpretation. You take it at word value. But then the second parent category is the spiritual interpretation of Scripture, and that has three subsets— the moral, the allegorical, and the anagogical. And that's talked about in, in the early 100s of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church. So uh, it seems to be the, the greater um, consistency here amongst the Church Fathers would be for the poor, but not necessarily just the material poor, but also those who lack faith. Great question. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. We appreciate the phone call. Uh, not taking your calls today, but we do have some callers left over that we're going to get to here. Uh, next up is Jim in Chicago, listening to EWTN Radio today uh, on the EWTN app. Jim, thanks so much for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hi, how are you, Father? Doing great. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm curious about uh, the priest in California that re, uh, refused to give Nancy Pelosi communion. Uh, this, what kills me is I've got a lot of relatives with dual citizenship in Ireland, and they're not cut off from communion, and they vote. Uh, they're, uh, for, uh, you know, they're liberals in, in Ireland. They voted for same-sex marriage and uh, for a woman's autonomy, but they're not cut off from the sacraments. And uh, right. I'm a Democrat. I'm a Democrat in Chicago. I voted Democrat all my life. I'm in my seventies. I've never gone to a confessional and had to say to the priest, "I voted Democrat or Republican." Yeah. So, uh, Father Way, talk a little bit about the uh, the overarching uh, idea 
uh, of the reception of Holy Communion, and then maybe just uh, your thoughts on the the yeah. situation with the Speaker of the House currently here. Yeah, the the only thing that that bars one from receiving communion is a objective mortal sin that subjectively is also mortal. And it becomes subjectively mortal when one's knowledge has been informed, uh, one's intellect has been informed of the gravity of the evil. So now we have a, 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 an, an action that is always and everywhere objectively sinful, but now in this particular case it's also subjectively sinful because the person's intellect has been made aware that it's grave matter, and if it's done with fullness of knowledge, and if it's done with deliberate consent of the will, all three elements of a mortal sin are present, so one cannot receive Holy Communion. So we never want to uh, deny communion, but we have every right to defer it, okay? And in in so-called denying, as you mentioned here, someone Holy Communion, the, the remedy lies with them. Right, So the, the Church clearly teaches, for example, that abortion is a grave evil, and that public advocacy for and support of abortion is, objectively speaking, such a manifest grave sin, right? Um, and so when a bishop defers Holy Communion of an individual because of their stance on a particular life issue, let's say, it's actually an act of pastoral, pastoral love and care for the individual so that they don't receive sacrilegious Holy Communions, Right to, to their greater condemnation, as Saint Paul teaches in First Corinthians. Right, um, we cannot receive uh, Holy Communion, uh, partake of the body of the Lord in in public manifest grave sin. And so, what we want to do here is we want to inform our consciences. You know, there's a great quote by Pope Saint Paul the Sixth, who says, "Let them follow their conscience. Yes, provided they have a rightly informed conscience. Right, because who wants to follow?" Uh, an, an erroneous conscience, that is to say, a conscience that is an error, where we get the word erroneous from. You don't want to follow your conscience if it's an error. You don't want to follow your conscience if it's erroneous. You want to follow a rightly informed conscience. And how do we know a rightly informed conscience? Well, it's one that's informed through sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterial teaching of the Church, the so-called three-legged stool. And everything that is manifested to us as worthy of belief to work out our salvation through the three-legged stool of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium is upheld and safeguarded by what's called the deposit of faith. And to willfully go against that teaching, you put yourself in grave error and your soul at risk. That's the teaching of the Church. So let them follow their conscience, yes, provided they have a rightly informed conscience. And we know how to rightly inform our conscience through the three-legged stool of sacred scripture, sacred tradition, and the magisterium. Great question. Thank you so much for your call today. A very timely uh, uh, question, Jim, I might say as well. Thank you. Next up is Jack in the great state of Michigan, listening also on the EWTN app. Jack, thanks for holding. You're on with Father Wade. Hey, Father Wade. Thanks for taking my call. You're welcome, Jack. Um, so today, when I was reading about the visitation, I got off on a, another uh, reading, and um, I'd never heard this before. I'm a cradle Catholic, and it said, at the moment that um, Mary greeted Elizabeth and, uh, and St. John left in her womb, that that actually was a point where uh, John was infused with sanctifying grace, and was freed from the effects of original sin. Now, I've never heard this 
I suspect it might be an Eastern tradition, but I was just curious if you had ever heard this as either uh, traditional or doctrinal. Yeah, it's also a Western tradition, and we get it mostly from the writings of the Church Fathers, uh, the patristic writers of the first seven to eight centuries. We say that, that, and believe, and hold, that John the Baptist was sanctified from the womb. That's the phraseology that's used to say that he was um, uh, freed from original sin at the coming of Christ. And of course, he's the great precursor, huh? So, So Mary was preserved from original sin and never contracted it from the first instant of her conception through the merits that would come through the cross of her son. So Mary received the benefits of the cross before the cross took place. She wasn't even conceived in original sin. She, she was immaculately conceived in St. Anne's womb. John the Baptist was conceived in original sin, okay, through the union of his parents, which, which uh, 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 tradition holds was Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. Uh, and, and, and sacred scripture makes that very clear. We also hold that scripturally, of course. Um, he was conceived in original sin, but was freed of it at the visitation. And we say that he was sanctified from the womb, which has a bearing teaching on it in and of itself that the womb is a holy place. The female womb is a holy place. From it begets life. Okay, and in, 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 in human fashion, what is normally a, a, a nine-month gestation period, give or take. So it's not a place of violence. It's not a place of killing. It's a place of life. It's a holy place. It's a sanctifying place from whence one can be even sanctified. Look at, this, look at the Old Testament Psalms. From before, uh, from, from before your birth, I knew you in the womb. Huh? Psalm 39, I believe it is. Um, I, before you were begotten, I knew you. Uh, before you were even begotten in the womb, I knew you, God says to the psalmist. So, um, you know, these are, these are realities that show us the, the sanctification reality of, of the womb. And, and, but yes, Mary was conceived without original sin uh, at the moment her parents united. Uh, she was conceived without it. John the Baptist was conceived with it, that is to say original sin, but he was sanctified from the womb uh, so that when he was born, he didn't have it. That's the, the time-honored teaching of, of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, both Eastern and Western traditions. Thank you so much for a great, great question and a, a great meditation, I might say, that you had this morning in reading the, the liturgical readings of the day uh, and the commentaries that come with them with, you know, maybe you subscribe to Magnificat or One Bread, One Body or The Word Among Us or any of those other great devotional readers out, that are out there. And that's the benefit, uh, Jack, of, of reading a daily devotional reader. Even if you can't get to the Mass, you can still see what the daily readings are for daily Mass, and there's often an accompanying um, meditation on the readings of the day, and that's a great thing. So it sounds like you benefited from that, and you learned a truth of our Catholic faith that, that you were not aware of before, that, that John the Baptist was sanctified from the womb of his mother Elizabeth. God bless you, Jack. We appreciate that phone call today. Michelle, do not hang up. Stay on the line. We're going to take a very, very quick break here in just a second, and then we will take your phone call. We're actually not taking your phone calls today. This is a pre-recorded mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, but Michelle and a few others were kind enough to hold over from the show prior to this one uh, that we are recording today. So we're going to get her great question uh, from North Carolina in just a moment. 
And then if you would like to be part of a future mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, you can send us an email. That address is openline at EWTN.com. That's openline, all one word, at EWTN.com. And you can put something in the subject line like Fathers of Mercy or Father Wade or Open Line Tuesday or Faith, Family, and Fellowship or something like that that will uh, let us know that that's where this particular email should go. So again, it's a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday, talking faith, family, and fellowship with Father Wade Menezes. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today's Open Line is recorded, so no calls, please. If you'd like to send us an email for a future show, the address is openline at EWTN.com. Um, we're going right back to the phones here. This is a very special mailbag edition, but we had some folks that had uh, agreed to hold over from the previous program. And Michelle in North Carolina, listening on Wilmington Catholic Radio, you win the Perseverance Award for the week for holding on so patiently. Michelle, you're on with Father Wade. Oh, thank you so much. And thank you, Father Wade. Thank you all for taking my phone call. I appreciate it so much. You're welcome. Yes. Thank you. I'm a cradle Catholic. And my best friend, she's Protestant, and we don't agree always on things, clearly. Um, But she was asking me what the difference was between spirit and soul, because she uses those two interchangeably. And I did not want to say anything incorrect, and I didn't know exactly what I should say. So that was my question for you, Father Wade. Well, semper distingue, as St. Thomas Aquinas would say, depends on what you're reading. and, and where, I mean, if, if you're reading something that's about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit acts on the person and their soul in growth and virtue, for example, the Spirit there is in regards to the third person of the Trinity. If you're talking only about the individual, a Spirit could refer to outlook, you know, of, of living the virtuous life joyfully and valiantly despite trials and tribulations. The person has a beautiful Spirit about them. But when we say soul, the anima, we're, we're, we're very, very specific. It's the form of the body, and where the body has uh, the five bodily senses, quote-unquote, sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, the soul has four primary faculties about it, and that is intellect, will, memory, and imagination. So the Catechism has a very, very beautiful section that you could witness to your friend about, and maybe even share those sections of the Catechism on the, the soul being the form of the body, not only its animating principle, but, but the, the, the very source that's infused at the moment of, of conception of the individual to implant the reality of the intellect, will, memory, and imagination that this person will, will one day hold with their, their bodily senses of sight, smell, taste, touch, and hearing, although very latent right now for all nine of those gifts of the body-soul composite, the five bodily senses and the four faculties of the soul, because the person was just conceived. So all these nine great gifts are latent, but, but, but they work together. So remember, we don't have bodies, we are bodies. And we don't have souls, we are souls. That's how intimate and intricate the body-soul compositeness 
of the human person is. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas goes so far as to say, and I've, I've said this before on Open Line Tuesday, St. Thomas looks at it this way, he says, uh, where the angels are non-embodied spirits, the human person is an embodied spirit. So there we're using the phrase spirit, which you and your friend have been talking about, and what do you mean by that? Well, looking at the angels is a good way as a non-embodied spirit, or the angels, but the human person is an embodied spirit, right? So that's how intimate and intricate the body-soul compositeness is in the human person. We don't have bodies, we are bodies. We don't have souls, we are souls. That's how, that's how profound this union is of the body-soul compositeness of what we call the human person. And this is how important the soul is as the form, that's a philosophical term, form, F-O-R-M. This is how important the, the soul is as the form of the body giving it its animated principle, but, but more than just a living body, uh, a body with an actual intellect, will, memory, and imagination. So, so great question, and, and, and I, would, I would refer you to the catechism section of the Universal Catechism of the Catholic Church to witness to your friend of what the Church teaches about the soul. Uh, great question. Thank you so much, Michelle, and thank you for your patience in holding on from the last hour live. God bless, Michelle. We appreciate it. Again, we're not taking your phone calls today. This is a very special mailbag edition of EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Paul writes in, Did you, Father Wade, say that one could receive Holy Communion on a first Friday Mass if one knew he was in a state of mortal sin as long as he went to confession soon after? Could you please clarify? Certainly. I did not say it as Paul writes the question. No, what I said was it was springboarding from a previous caller um, on, a, on a previous show who was kind of distraught that he had every intention of going to confession, but he couldn't make it to confession through no fault of his own. In other words, it wasn't through lackadaisicalness on his part or his purely being lazy that he didn't make it to confession. No, he tried to go to confession. He looked for confession, but could not find a confessor. And he felt, sincerely so, that he had a mortal sin on his soul. So what does the Church teach in a situation like that, where you've made an effort to go to confession, through no fault of your own you're not able to go to confession, you have every intention of going to confession as soon as is reasonably possible, can you still receive communion? Yes, you can, provided you make a perfect act of contrition first, which is an act of contrition where you're mostly sorry because your sins, both mortal and venial, have offended God, and secondarily because of what they threaten you with, with either eternal or temporal punishment in hell or in purgatory, or temporal punishment on earth as well, um, uh, through living a, a, this life in, in, a, in a wounded, broken world, resulting in the fall of our original uh parents, the original sin of our first parents. Uh, if you make a perfect act of contrition, number one, and number two, you retain that desire to go to confession as soon as is reasonably possible, yes, you can receive Holy Communion, because it was through no fault of your own that you couldn't get to confession. Now, there's a third element here that needs to be said. Such a practice should not become habitual in a person's life where you are receiving regular communion, say, at your Sunday Mass, not going to confession first, that's when your lackadaisicalness does set in, and that's wrong. So this should not become a habit. It only should be an isolated instance now and again where you truly, sincerely try to get to confession, but through no fault of your own, we're not able to. You can make a perfect act of contrition, 
and still receive communion at that forthcoming Mass with the intention being retained to still go to confession, to confess the mortal sin as soon as is reasonably possible. But this should not become habitual in the person's life. The Church teaches this, and a lot of Catholics don't know this. And it's, it's to protect the person from scrupulosity, it's to protect the person from despair. But such a practice should not become habitual. Now, going back to Paul's question, did I say this about a First Friday? I probably used the First Friday as the example. I'd, I'd have to go back and listen to the podcast to make sure that I did or didn't. But, it, but the fact that it's a First Friday Mass doesn't mean anything, because you can do this at any Mass. You can do this for any Mass, any communion received at any Mass, uh, regardless if it was a First Friday Mass or not. This is just simply the Church's teaching, that if through no fault of your own you made every effort to go to confession, but through no fault of your own weren't able to go to confession, but you're sincerely knowledgeable of the mortal sin on your soul— can you still receive communion? Yes, provided you make a perfect act of contrition as opposed to an imperfect act of contrition. The imperfect act of contrition is where you're sorry for your sins, mostly because of the eternal or temporal punishment they threaten you with, uh, and then secondarily because they've offended God. But the perfect act of contrition is the reverse of that. You're mostly sorry for your sins precisely because they've offended God first, and then only secondarily because of the punishment they threaten you with. So you've got to have a perfect act of contrition. Such an action should not become habitual in your life, and you need to still retain the intention of going to confession as soon as is reasonably possible after having attended that Mass where you did receive the communion. So, so this doesn't bear on a question of whether or not it was the first Friday Mass. That's irrelevant. This is what the Church teaches about any Mass, even a Sunday obligation Mass, which holds a higher priority than a First Friday Mass, because First Friday is not obligatory, but Sunday Mass is obligatory. So great question, Paul. Thank you so much. Got an anonymous email here. The, uh, the emailer writes, A few weeks ago, I had a stillbirth. I am struggling with ways to communicate or pray with my Son in Heaven. Can you offer any help to pray to Him? Certainly. You know, there's a beautiful quote by Pope Benedict XVI as Cardinal Ratzinger when he was still head of the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He was talking about the theological conjecture of limbo, which the Church has never taught de fide as an article of the faith. That's what de fide means in Latin, of the faith. The Church never taught limbo de fide, but you could hold it as a theological conjecture that it was a place where the unbaptized innocent ones went. Well, as Cardinal Ratzinger, in promoting the Divine Mercy devotion and getting the world ready for the canonization of St. Faustina, who was the first saint canonized at the dawn of the new millennium, she was the very, very first saint canonized by St. John Paul II during the Jubilee year 2000, and she was canonized on Divine Mercy Sunday. John Paul II purposefully held off on all canonizations during the Jubilee year 2000 because he wanted Faustina to be the very first one, and he wanted to do it on Divine Mercy Sunday per se. Well, the future Pope Benedict XVI was the head of the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith, and he made a beautiful comment. He said, the more and more we discover about God's divine mercy, less and less is limbo needed as a theological conjecture. So we trust in the mercy of God. So you, you have the, the, the faith that tells you that you have a little baby who's a saint in heaven. Remember, everybody in heaven is a saint. Not everybody in heaven is a canonized saint, a formally canonized saint. We know that we have about eight to 10,000 canonized saints in the church, but, but everybody in heaven is a saint. And I, and I have the virtue of hope, one of the three theological virtues, 
faith, hope, and charity. I have the theological virtue of hope that there's more than eight to town, more than eight to ten thousand souls in heaven. Right? That's just a, a historical fact that we have eight to ten thousand formally canonized saints, or maybe not formally canonized, because the earliest canonizations were done by proclamation to the people, but still subject to Rome's approval, to, to, to the Church's approval, uh, which the Church gave. So we have the earliest saints like St. Saint Christopher or St. Saint Philomena that, that weren't formally canonized by the Church. That, that came later on in the later centuries, especially beginning in the 6th century, uh, formal canonizations. But but we have uh, the earliest ones done by proclamation of the people. So you have the virtue of hope that your little baby that was stillborn is a saint in heaven praying for you, and, that, and that's a beautiful reality because of what the Church teaches about that reality of, of the unbaptized through no fault of their own were not able to be baptized. And so that's one thing, is just simply to focus on the teachings of, of the Church, right? That's a beautiful reality, um, to, do, to do just that. Um, also, there's a few, a few beautiful books out there that also touch upon these realities of the sanctification of the little ones who were not able to be baptized. I'd like to give you a couple of titles. Um, After Miscarriage, A Catholic Woman's Companion to Healing and Hope by Karen Edmiston, E-D-M-I-S-T-E-N. You can go back and listen to the podcast to get that spelling, but After Miscarriage, A Catholic Woman's Companion to Healing and Hope. Uh, Also, Grieving the Child I Never Knew, a devotional for comfort in the loss of your unborn or newly born child by Kathy Wunnenberg, W-U-N-N-E-N-B-E-R-G. Again, the title is Grieving the Child I Never Knew, a devotional for comfort in the loss of your unborn or newly born child. And then also Journey to Peace, 31 devotions through the grief of miscarriage, stillbirth, or Other Pregnancy Loss by Kiana Barnes, B-A-R-N-E-S. Kiana is spelled K-E-A-N-N-A. Again, the title of the text is Journey to Peace, 31 Devotions Through the Grief of Miscarriage, Stillbirth, or Other Pregnancy Loss by Kiana Barnes. So there's three beautiful texts that might aid you as well, but I think also the comfort of knowing um, what the Church teaches about the unborn, who through no fault of their own were not able to be baptized. I also want to direct you to a beautiful website called heavensgain.org regarding miscarriages, stillborn babies, etc. Some couples have questions like, well, depending on how far along the baby was, can we still have a formal burial for it? How can we honor the baby if we don't have a formal burial for it? Questions like this, huh? So heavensgain, all one word, heavensgain.org, a beautiful website begun by a husband and wife who themselves experience several miscarriages and assist couples in their own loss of, of miscarriage, stillbirth, or, or other pregnancy losses. Uh, great question. Thank you so much. And, and God bless you in your continued healing following the stillbirth of your child. If you're looking for a nice uh, alternative news source that uh, gives you things from a Catholic perspective, we've got you covered. Check out EWTN News Nightly tonight and every night, Monday through Friday, 9 p.m. Eastern Time, right here on EWTN Radio and Television. Um, Aaron writes in, I've been reflecting lately on how much I have gossiped defamed, calumniated, and aided in propagating rumors rumors over the course of my life. I have sought absolution, but I realize I cannot make complete reparations for any harm done to victims' reputations. 
What can I do? Must I seek out as many as I can and offer restitution before I can return to communion? Great question. Uh, You don't have to necessarily make direct amends to the individual you hurt or spoke badly about, because that could make matters even worse. Think of the 12-step programs, huh? Uh, Whether it's Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Sexaholics Anonymous, Overeaters Anonymous, or Gamblers Anonymous. Um, One of the 12 steps is that we were we made a firm desire to make amends to such people we had hurt whenever was possible, except when to do so would further injure them or others. So your main concern here, first and foremost, is to make a good, holy, reverent confession. You know, I th- this is a, just a, a great question about self-knowledge, This what this person right ends, Jack. You know, Aaron, again, I have been reflecting lately on how much I have gossiped, defamed, calumniated, and aided in propagating rumors over the course of my life. Um, I've sought absolution, but realize I cannot make complete reparations for any harm done to the victim's reputations. Well, maybe not to them especially if they're not open to you going to them and apologizing. But you surely can make a full reparation in God's eyes, huh? And you began that, you began that full reparation by seeking out um, absolution in the sacrament of penance. Uh, that was a great thing to do. If you can seek out the individual, more power to you. Um, this shows great self-knowledge on your part, Aaron, and I want to commend you on that. I think of 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, which says this very beautifully, strip away everything vicious. Remember, the word vicious shares the same Latin root as the word for vice, vice and vicious, right? Strip away everything vicious, everything deceitful, pretenses, jealousies, envy, slander, and disparaging remarks of any kind. Like newborn infants, long for pure spiritual milk, so that through it you may grow into your salvation." for you have tasted that the Lord is good. So regular reception of Holy Eucharist, regular confession, uh, but don't stay too focused on these past things that you've done because you don't want to become scrupulous about them either. You want to be able to confess them in a general sense, tell your confessor in any way, shape, or form, in any amount of times to any of the varying degrees that you gossiped, that you offered to another disparaging marks about a third-party member. You're sorry for all this. Just confess it in a generic way. So that's the first thing. Uh, Second thing is, if you can go to a particular individual and you believe they would be open to your apology, do that. That can also bring great healing. But remember, that step nine of the 12-step programs, it may not be an appropriate time to do that. Again, we made direct amends to apologize to such people we had hurt whenever it was possible, except when to do just that would further injure them or others, meaning they were not open to your apology, and you could actually do greater harm by seeking them out to apologize them. In other words, they're not there yet for the apology. You are, and that's a beautiful thing, but they're not there yet, and you need to respect that. This is the reality of fallen human nature. You need to respect where they are at, okay? Then you don't want to stay focused on this past of yours either. You want to move forward. What does Jesus tell the adulterous woman? He says to them, women, where have they all gone? When the men start leaving one by one, when Jesus says, let any of you who have not sinned cast the first stone at her, and they begin to to leave one by one, and this after Jesus stooped down twice to write on the ground with his index finger, many of the church fathers providing exegesis on that passage from Luke say that Jesus was writing down their sins, you know, and, and they saw that he was writing down their sins, so they start going away one by one. Well, they're all gone now, so Jesus says to her, 
woman, where have they gone? Have, have, are, are none left to condemn you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, when you tell someone to go, you tell them to go forwards, right? You don't tell them to hang on to their past and to keep going b- backwards. No, you tell them to go forwards. And that's an important thing, you know? So uh, we got to move forward. Uh, there's a great passage um, from Second Peter chapter two, verse twenty-two, uh, when Peter says, "Do not be like a dog that returns to its own vomit, nor like a sow that, after cleaning herself, returns to wallow in her mire." Don't keep going back to your wicked, sinful past. Our Lord wants you to move forward. You're not your savior, and people who keep going back to their fast, uh, to their past, excuse me tend to make themselves their Savior, and that surely is not healthy. Jesus Christ is your Savior. You are not your Savior, and that's something very important um, t- to remember. So, great question. Um, Philip writes in, can it be that the gravity of a sin is lessened if it was committed due to an addiction? When confessing such a sin, should we mention the addiction to the confessor? Yes, you should. And yes, it can alleviate the degree of culpability. We see this in the Universal Catechism, for example, in the section on chastity. Um, It says, uh, for example, that uh, to form an equitable judgment about the subject's moral responsibility uh, in this vice or that vice, and to guide pastoral action to aid the person, one must take into account the affective immaturity of the person at hand, that's affective, A-F-F-E-C-T-I-V-E, meaning the affections, huh? The're, the affections have an immaturity about them. Must take into account such things as, as an affective or emotional immaturity would be another way to say it, the force of the acquired habit, the conditions of anxiety that are present when the person carries out the viceful action, and other psychological or social factors that can lessen, if not even reduce to a minimum, one's moral guilt or culpability. So yes, psychological factors can uh, mitigate one's moral culpability, but that doesn't give the person freedom to continue to carrying out the viceful action. Uh, Not at all. In fact, because your intellect's been made aware that the psychological factors may mitigate your culpability, it's more incumbent upon you then to try to get really healed, totally healed of that past, of those past wounds, and and try to move forward. This kind of dovetails, by the way, Jack, with the the previous question that we just had. Um, I I, I talked about uh, uh, our Lord telling the sinful woman, I think I said Luke's Gospel, it's John's Gospel, chapter 8, the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. In other words, move forward, don't look back. And 2 Peter 2, verse 22 do not be like a dog that returns to its own vomit, nor like a sow that after washing returns to wallow in her mire. Uh, we got to keep moving forward. Luke 9, 62, Jesus himself says, no one who puts a hand to the plow and keeps looking back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. St. Paul in Philippians three thirteen says, I focus on this one thing and one thing only, forgetting the past and looking forward to only what lies ahead. And then Isaiah 12, 2, chapter 12, verse 2, has the prophet saying, I will go forward confidently now and no longer be afraid. I will go forward confidently now and no longer be afraid. God is the source of my strength, the tower of my defense. The Lord has made himself my protector. Well, not only do these passages from Scripture apply regarding to moving forward to one who has a horrendous past of of gossip and calumny and disparaging remarks to others, but also to those who who might have a a lessened culpability to a viceful act, whether it's 
pornography or self-abuse or, or anything like that, alcohol addiction, drug addiction, but it, it remains incumbent upon them to be healed, to move forward and be healed. And I think these scripture passages that I just shared with the former question, in regards to the former question, also apply to this question. We want to be healed of that past, of the addiction, of the vice, and we want to move forward. So such a a habit of seeing yourself not as culpable should not become a habit itself. Uh, otherwise, you can use be using confession as a crutch, and you have to really want to be healed and move forward. Great question. And finally, I think our final uh, question of the day, Joseph says, I've been called to testify in a friend's divorce case. What are my obligations and what prohibitions exist for me as a Catholic? Well, that's a, that's a very good question and a sincere question. You want to be just in your testimony, but you also want to be honest with the Catholic friend who's who you're testifying on behalf of, or even the innocent spouse. You know, as stated in, in 2286 of the Catechism, uh, and this is extremely important, a lot of Catholics don't realize this, uh, 2386 in the section on divorce says, it can happen that one of the spouses is the innocent victim of a divorce decreed by civil law. This spouse, therefore, has not contravened the moral law. They didn't want the divorce. There is a considerable difference between a spouse who has sincerely tried to be faithful to the sacrament of matrimony and is unjustly abandoned by the one seeking out the divorce and one who through his own grave fault destroys a canonically valid marriage, right? So canonically, the petitioner of the divorce should have reception of Holy Communion deferred to them, and this is something you can share with the party that's the petitioner. Um, canonically speaking, according to canon law, the 83 code, 1983 code, the petitioner of the divorce should have reception of Holy Communion deferred to them until he or she repents publicly for abandoning the innocent spouse. The Catechism of the Catholic Church is clear in that number 2386 that I just quoted, that divorce is a grave sin against nature, and one, and, and one can be an innocent spouse who has had the divorce foisted upon them, so to speak. So, you're being called to testify. You want to be truthful and just in what you testify, but also outside of civil law, you want to be able to share with the spouses, both the innocent and the petitioner, what's proper for them, according to church teaching as well. Father Wade, would you leave us with a blessing? I certainly will, Jack. May the blessing of Almighty God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit descend upon all of our Open Line Tuesday listeners and remain with each and every one of you this day and always. St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. Pray for us on behalf of our host, Father Wade Menezes, and our producer, Michael McCall. I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line Tuesday. Back at it tomorrow, Father Mitch is in the house talking church teaching, ancient languages, sacred scripture, and the like. Until we get together tomorrow with Father Mitch, God bless. God bless.